It's so good to be back. I was thinking this week about uh, the number of times that we say, why do you do that? Why, why do we do that? Do you, do you ever ask that question? Uh, I, the first time that I, I went back as far in my memory as I could, and the first time I really remember asking that question, I asked my best friend at the time, I was in elementary school, and his name was Greg, and we called him Butterbean, but that's the side, beside the point. So his family, for some reason, opened their Christmas gifts on Christmas Eve. And I, I'm sure I was just in despair with envy because we were a Christmas morning group. And so I said, why do you do that? And he said, I don't know, that's just what we do. And every year, with the exception of the Santa Claus part, they got to get their stuff on Christmas Eve, and it bothered me. And I'm still bitter about it just a little bit. But why do we do that? Today, we're going to step into that question as it relates to the Lord's Supper. Why do we do that? My fear is that there are times where we just do it, without really considering why we do it. What's it about? What's the message? What are we really celebrating? So today, we're going to answer that question. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we're so thankful that in your providence, in your wisdom, you established ways that we could be anchored in your truth and tied to your body from the beginning, the body of Christ. And today, Lord, as we talk about what we have come to call the Lord's Supper, communion, or the Eucharist, I, I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would open our eyes to have understanding, and in your Spirit, you would lead us to celebrate the great truth that liberates us from the laws of sin and death. It's in the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So if, if I were to ask you to identify the single most important event in the New Testament, the most important thing, I, I think most of you would say, well, can... We separate, like, the crucifixion and the resurrection. No, those are the same, okay? That's, that, I'm looking at that as one event, and I think virtually all of us would agree that's the one. And the reason is simple. It is because everyone knows that the sacrificial death of Jesus and his triumphant resurrection is the crux of the matter, okay? It is the, the foundation upon which our faith is built, that, that answer to me is pretty self-evident. But what would you say if someone were to ask you the same question about the Old Testament? What is the single most important event in the Old Testament? Not quite as simple, is it? Is it creation? Is it the flood? Is it the covenant that God made with Abraham? Is it the exodus? Is it them actually entering the promised land, building the temple? Is it Jonah being swallowed by a whale? Is it the prophet that uh, 
condemned the kids, the preacher. He was a preacher, and kids were making fun of him, so he called bears down. Is that the most important one? No. Is it Ezra rebuilding the temple and then Nehemiah rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem? Now, New Testament believers are probably going to have some level of difficulty identifying the most important event in the Old Testament, but if Jews, if we ask Jews, they would say immediately that it is the Exodus. It's the Exodus. The miraculous delivery of slavery from Egypt is the event that is most important in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, it is mentioned so many times in the Old Testament that almost every book refers to it. And if you went to a Jewish worship service, nearly every service they have mentions the Exodus. It is a really big deal. As a matter of fact, it is such a big deal that the first commandment Number one of the top ten is based on, anchored in the Exodus story. Did you know that? Look at Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Scripture says, and God spoke these words. He's about to give them the top ten, the ten commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. When God was giving the rules, he identified himself as the one who pulled off the Exodus. You know the story, right? Working with Moses and his brother Aaron, God inflicted the Egyptians with ten plagues, the last of which left Pharaoh begging for the children of Israel to get out of Egypt. After they left, they began what should have been a relatively short journey to the promised land. It didn't work out that way because they were somewhat rebellious. You know that, I would assume. But during that journey, God spelled out the expectations that he had for his newly freed children. And in doing so, he pointed right back to the miracle of the Exodus to inspire them to inspire their faith and fidelity to him. See, because he delivered them from slavery, because he liberated them, reinstating their dignity by restoring their right to exercise free will, that's what happens. When we are freed by God, we are free to exercise our will. They were expected to respond by never putting another God before him. Their deliverance proved that he was the one true God. I am the God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. But it didn't stop with the first commandment. Most of the commands that guided their covenant keeping to the one true God were anchored in that Exodus story. I'm going to show you three. Exodus 19.34. The foreigners residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. This goes back to their experience in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In Leviticus chapter 25. It says, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor 
and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger so they can continue to live among you. Verse 38 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And then in Deuteronomy 5.15, he says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Now, let's just think about that. Each of those commands is directly linked to God's actions on Israel's behalf in Egypt. His people were forbidden by command to mistreat foreigners because they were abused as foreigners in Egypt. His people had to help the poor in the land because they experienced extreme poverty when they were in the land of Egypt. And his people must rest Remember the Sabbath day. They must rest and allow their servants to rest on the Sabbath. Why? Because rest is what they longed for as slaves in Egypt. So understand God's mind-blowing, miracle-working acts that sprung them from captivity in Egypt should have been enough for them to recognize him, to know that he was the one true God, and to trust him. What was he saying? All of the commands that we receive from God are invitations to demonstrate our trust. We believe that you are God. We believe that you're all-powerful and all-wise, and we will follow your commands because we trust you. And God said to the Israelites, look back at what I did in Egypt. Can you trust me? Will you keep the covenant? Here are the expectations, all pointing back to what happened in Egypt. So it's not a surprise that God kept in front and center as, as he revealed the commands that would guide them to the crucial endeavor of covenant keeping. He kept the Exodus story alive before them. For generations... He kept that story alive. Let me ask you a question. Did you know that even before he did it, even before he delivered them by dispatching the death angel to take the oldest born of their enemies, that's what happened in the 10th plague, before that happened, God anticipated and taught them to anticipate his deliverance by giving Moses explicit instructions for how they were to prepare themselves for deliverance as well as how they were going to commemorate and celebrate the event in the future. So listen, before the death angel passed over them, you'll know about the Passover, that's where we're headed, before the death angel passed over them, he called for an annual Passover festival. Okay, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, this is what God said. This is the day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Now, what is an ordinance? It is an order spoken directly from God. 
That's an ordinance. So this was to be an ordinance that was celebrated every year, generation after generation. The instruction was for them to recreate and reenact the scene right down to duplicating the meal that they ate in preparation for their escape from Egypt. That's what the Passover celebration is, is a reenactment of everything that happened, the way they dressed, what they were supposed to say and do, right down to what they ate. Now, do you remember what it was they did? It's all laid out if you want to read. We're not going to take time to do it today, but if you want to read it, it's spelled out in Exodus chapter 12. But the command from God, because the scripture says without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, no forgiveness for sin. They were commanded to slaughter a lamb. Okay, and every Israelite was to eat it as their last meal in Egypt. Now, listen to what I'm saying. They were to eat it as their last meal in captivity in Egypt. But that wasn't all. The blood of that slaughtered lamb was to be painted on the doorposts of their homes. Why? Because when the death angel passed through, he would literally pass over the homes that were covered by the blood of the lamb. And those on the inside who trusted God and obeyed his commands would be saved. It was the only way. There was one way to be saved. It's through the blood of the lamb painted on the doorpost of the home. In addition to that, they were to eat only unleavened bread for the meal. Now, why unleavened bread? What, what is the problem with yeast? Well, in ancient times, leavening was done by adding a, block, a blob, really, of old, raw, fermented dough, rotting dough, to the new dough. Okay, that, that's how it was leavened. So the fresh batch of bread was deliberately infected with microbes that would cause it to rise beautifully in the moment and be appealing, draw everybody in, but there were side effects. Later, that bread would begin to sour. It would decay and eventually rot. So... In their minds, the puffiness of the leavening came to cause them to think of human pride and hypocrisy. Or we say, we get all puffed up in pride. That's where that comes from. They correctly saw leavening as a picture of sin and contamination, something that they needed to be rid of if they were going to experience God and his deliverance from slavery. The notion was reinforced, by the way, later in the Old Testament. The notion was reinforced by God himself, who declared that only unleavened bread would be accepted as a worthy offering to God in worship. So when they went to the house of God, to the synagogue or the temple, and they offered bread, it had to be unleavened bread because that bread was free of contamination. Guess what the Israelites did? Exactly as they were told. 
The nine plagues that preceded the tenth one convinced them that God would do exactly as he said he would do. The end result was, after they ate the lamb, painted the blood on the door, and had the unleavened bread, the end result was they were spared from death and delivered from slavery in Egypt as the tenth plague caused Pharaoh to practically beg them to leave. So every year thereafter, every year thereafter, the Jews were supposed to remember that event with the feast of the Passover. That that was the command. Before it happened, God said, from here on out, commemorate what's about to happen with the feast of the Passover. Now, why in the world are we talking about this? Because it provides context for the feast that we are partaking in here today. Okay, just as Jews were to commemorate the Exodus as the most important event in their history, followers of Jesus are supposed to commemorate the death and resurrection of Jesus as the most important event in our history. It's the most important. Now, We don't call our feast the Passover. We call it the Lord's Supper. We call it communion or we call it Eucharist. The Lord's Supper looks back to the Last Supper. That's one of the reasons we call it that. Communion understands that we are united with God and those who believe. And the word Eucharist gives us the idea that we are offering thanksgiving to God for his goodness. Now, just as the Passover was ordered by God to help them remember their deliverance and, and live according to God's covenant, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance that is established by Jesus to help us remember our deliverance and the new covenant that gives us the hope of life and flourishing, eternal life and abundant life in this one. Now, if you don't know it, The Lord's Supper is a duplication of the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples in the upper room the night before he was crucified. It's exactly the same. Okay? Just like the Passover duplicated Israel's last supper in Egypt, the Lord's Supper duplicates the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples before his death. Now, all of this is described for us in Luke chapter 22, what happened in that last supper. So if you have your Bibles and want to follow along, if you want to read what happened in the upper room, in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover. What are they doing? They're eating the meal that God instructed them to eat the night before the tenth plague, thousands of years earlier. I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. This is my last one. 
After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread. What kind of bread was it? It was unleavened bread. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. During the Last Supper, which was obviously their observance of the Passover meal, Jesus shockingly broke from tradition. Rather than pointing back to the story of the Exodus, he revealed how the story of the Exodus and the Passover meal itself pointed forward to him. It told his story. It painted the picture of his sacrifice. It pointed to the fact that we could anticipate a new story of good news, of God's ultimate delivery from slavery. Slavery to sin and death. It pointed to the good news of God's freeing power. And in doing so, by breaking with tradition, Jesus reinterpreted the elements of the Passover meal in a revolutionary way. The unleavened bread would no longer represent the ideal of holiness to which people were to aspire. But now the unleavened bread represented his body, his life, actually the reality of holiness. See, on the night before his death on the cross... When Jesus held up that unleavened bread and said, This is my body. This is my body. He was revealing that his body was uncontaminated by sin. Unlike the rest of humanity, Jesus had not been infected with the devastating effects of sin. He alone was perfect. Only his broken body would be an acceptable sacrifice to God. Remember how only unleavened bread could be offered on the altar? Jesus was saying, This, I am the bread of life. My bread is unleavened. It is uncontaminated. 
It is the offering required to fulfill the law, to finish the story, to complete the picture. Centuries earlier, when God prohibited his people from eating leaven during the Passover, looking back now, it seems obvious that God was pointing to, thinking ahead to the night that Jesus took that bread with his hands and broke it and said, this is my body given for you, just as the unleavened bread would sustain them as they started their journey in the, through the wilderness to the promised land. The bread of life, Jesus himself, will sustain us on our journey to heaven. Anyone who consumes the bread by faith now, does not just aspire to righteousness, to holiness, but we are made righteous and we are empowered to live the righteous life. Paul and other believers understood that was exactly what Jesus was saying. Listen to how Paul uses this image to describe how Jesus' sacrifice, his broken body, enables us to live righteously. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Your, your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? ruins everything. So get rid of the old yeast so that you may be new, a new unleavened batch as you really are. Not as you might be, not as you could be, but if you're a follower of Jesus, it is as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now Paul's direction is very specific there. It is for us to celebrate that because Jesus' body was broken for us, when we place our faith in that, we are as unleavened bread. We are like his body. We are free because of his sacrifice. This is why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. The Greek there can be interpreted to be a sin offering. Okay, think about that. He's on the altar, the acceptable sacrifice. God made him who knew no sin to be a sin offering for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, that is who you are. That is what we celebrate when we take the bread, the body of Christ, who was broken for us. We're free 
Because of that sacrifice, his sacrifice enabled us to become the righteousness of God so we no longer have to live in unrighteousness. We are no longer chained, enslaved to our flesh. We have been set free. We don't have to fall victim to the decay of the leavened world around us. We should live as unleavened bread with the hallmarks of heavenly righteousness which he defined as sincerity and truth. Earnestly celebrating the sacrifice in truth. Not giving away the truth, not apologizing for the truth, but living in the truth victoriously. Believing what he said, just as the only way to get out of Egypt was under the blood of the Lamb, the only way to get into our promised land, which is life with God in eternity, is through the blood of the Lamb, the broken body and the blood that has been offered. It's truth that we must not apologize for or shrink from. Jesus reinterpreted the unleavened bread. He said, this is my body. But he also reinterpreted the wine, the cup. Rather than explaining to his disciples in standard operating procedure for the Passover, he didn't explain that the wine symbolized the blood of the lamb that was painted over the doorpost of their homes. Rather, Jesus revealed from that point forward, it would symbolize his blood that when painted on the doorposts of their hearts would liberate them from the laws of sin and death. That's what the blood of the Lamb does. Just as the Passover had created a new nation that was free to follow God and explore life in his covenant, liberated from bondage in Egypt, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, inaugurated a new kingdom of the heart, God's kingdom. It's comprised of those who are liberated from slavery to the laws of sin and death, who now live according to the new covenant that was established by God's grace and is enacted by our faith. In grace... In grace, God sent Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, the Scripture.